Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by Green Branch Publishing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Say, Mike, do you know who Sarah Bernhardt was? Wait a minute. The actress that slept in the coffin? (laughs) Well, yes, that she did. And the coffin is one of those things that Sarah Bernhardt is most remembered for today, but there is so much more to Sarah than that. Okay, Tothi, you have my full undivided attention. Please tell me some more. Okay. Well, Sarah Bernhardt, for those who've never heard that name before, was a French stage actress. She was born in 1844 into a bit of drama. She was the illegitimate daughter of a Dutch Jewish courtesan who was a prostitute, actually, and had a wealthy upper class clientele. Okay. Well, Clearly a fascinating start to life, but um, I need to know more about the the second half of the equation, Tothi. Tell me about her father. Actually, his name is not recorded. It is not in the written record. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, protect the innocent or um, maybe guilty as it may be. (laughs) For sure. So growing up, Sarah didn't see much of her mom. Well, I don't think she saw any much at all of her father and not much of her mom either, who apparently traveled a lot. So at the age of seven, Sarah's mom sent her to a girls' boarding school outside of Paris. Oh, let me guess. Uh, with funds from the upper-class clientele father, yep, right? You, you got and, that right, Mike. Uh, mm-hmm. And while she was in boarding school, Sarah became involved in theatrical productions, and that kicked off her lifetime of dramatic roles, fame and fortune, world tours, stage and film performances. And, you know, she played both female and male characters. She played classical roles. It was just, she had quite a storied career, and it was filled with lots of drama. I see. And that's the topic we're covering today, right? Drama. Mm -hmm. Is that why we're talking about Sarah Bernhardt? Yes, because Sarah is an example of someone who was very talented and valuable to her theater company, but who had some kooky and not so great offstage behaviors. Kind of like that whole coffin thing, right? Yeah, well, that's true. Although, honestly, the coffin thing is pretty benign compared with some of the other things that she did. Oh, and by the way, she also, she loved animals, exotic animals, and she kept all kinds of them from dogs and turtles and lizards to even owning a cheetah at one point. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. And with the coffin, she was known to nap in there and rehearse her lines, but the coffin really didn't interfere with her inner personal relationships at work or in life. Oh, why would it? It just generally added to her legendary persona, I guess, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, if you take a look at some of the photos on Wikipedia, you can actually see her in the coffin. It's quite interesting. She puts her hands on her chest and (laughs) got all kinds of flowers around her. It's really interesting. No, but but the issue with Sarah, and stick with me here as I tie this back to our topic of workplace trauma, I'm going to get there is that she was a talented celeb who got away with things like breaking an umbrella over a theater doorkeeper's head and slapping an older actress when they said something that Sarah didn't like. (laughs) That clearly does not qualify as appropriate uh, workplace behavior, does it? (laughs) Sounds like uh, our friend Sarah Bernhardt could have used some coaching and guidance on how to play nicely with others. Throwing many temper tantrums is uh, never a good solution. 
Correct. It is not. So for all of Sarah's talents and positive traits, for instance, during the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, she took charge of converting the Odeon Theater into a hospital for wounded soldiers. But despite that, she still could have benefited from some good leadership and behavior modification. Wow, she stepped up as a as a patriot during the uh, during the war. Yeah, uh, who knew? Yeah, yeah true, true story. And get this: she paid her personal chef to prepare soup for the patients, and she persuaded her wealthy friends and admirers to donate supplies. And that's not all. She didn't just organize things. She worked as a nurse, and she assisted the chief surgeon with amputations and operations. So I'm tying it back to healthcare here. You see, Mike, see I'm, see what I'm doing here. <laughs> this is this is a an amazing woman and a just a fabulous story. Yeah, uh, clearly I am quite a posthumous fan. I really am. Well, clearly, but let's get back to workplace drama here, Tothy. You're saying that Sarah had some traits that didn't serve her well when dealing dealing with others. I I grant you that, mm-hmm. and that this is <clears throat> what we're talking about uh, with today's guest, author and speaker, uh, Marlene Chisholm how to recognize drama, and work through the various dramas in the office. She has some great advice for handling these kind of uh, challenges in physician practices, doesn't she? Yeah, she really does. And in my interview, Marlene walks us through how to, as, as she puts it, achieve peace and prosperity in the practice in order to achieve success. And she has a lot of great tips and guidance and some interesting stories to tell, too. Well, that sounds, that sounds great. You know what we have to do, Dothy, before we, before we get to your fabulous interview of, of Marlene, it's that time, your, your favorite time and my favorite time of the podcast, Word of the Show. Word of the Show. And I have a good one for this episode, Mike. It's catty, deliberately hurtful in one's remarks and spiteful, catty. Ouch. Or should I say meow? Not an <laughs> adjective that uh, you would like to have uh, said about uh, yourself, is it? No, but the truth is that sometimes people can get a little catty with each other when they're dealing with others on the team who aren't pulling their weight or those folks that are hoarding work in an effort to make themselves look better. Mm, Not so great. Mm. Um, They might cause some backlash. And so these are examples of how workplace drama can get in the way of prosperity and practice success. I see. Now, I've observed some uh, staff who act catty in response Mm -hmm. to controlling manager or physician. Uh, None of these are good things, Tothi. So let's stop talking about the problem and hear what our guest expert has to say about the solution. Here's your interview with Marlene Chisholm and her guidance for how listeners can stop workplace drama in their practice. Joining us today to talk about drama, workplace drama, and that, wow, that is a topic, right? Drama, uh, is consultant, speaker, and coach Marlene Chisholm. And Marlene has authored three books. They're called uh, Success is a Given, Stop Workplace Drama, and Non-Drama Leadership. And um, Green Branch just recently launched Marlene's most recent book, 10 Ways to Stop Drama in Your Healthcare Practice. I'm sure we're going to get into some of the uh, content in that today. And um, it's really more than a book, actually. It's, it's got a 90-minute audio presentation. It has a 100-plus page handbook for, with, work, uh, with exercises and things and a learning guide. So Marlene's going to walk us through that as well as a lot of other things. Um, 
Marlene, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Cheryl. Well, you know, I think that this that the topic of this episode is intriguing. I know I'm intrigued. Um, so let's start by hearing you define what workplace drama is. I mean, what does this mean? Tell us. I about know. It. I love this question because when I first started talking about drama. Uh, the word was not in full force like it is now. And people would say things like, well, I, of course we have drama. We work with a, a, a office full of women. And I would jokingly <laughs> say, you know, my next book is going to be called Men Have Drama Too, because all you have to do is look <laughs> at politics and sports and there's tons of drama. It's much bigger than what we women have with our petty little grievances. <laughs> I would also hear people say, I don't do drama. And I thought, well, that person either has a different definition or they're completely clueless. And generally they were completely clueless. But I created a definition that's pretty all-inclusive for that word. So I really was on a mission to change the way we view drama. And so my definition that I use all the time is that drama is any obstacle to peace or prosperity. And the visual that I use with that, if we're at a flip chart or if we're looking at a PowerPoint, is at the bottom left side, you see a little boat with a a man in it, that man can represent you as the leader, the administrator, or it could represent your team. But there's you in the boat and the upper right hand corner, there's the island that you're trying to get to. And mm -hmm. so we're always trying to get from point A to point B, but there's always an obstacle. And the bigger the gap, the more potential for those obstacles. And in the middle, in that obstacle, we see a big shark. And so the shark is the obstacle. That's the drama. It's what keeps you from getting to your end result, keeps you from being peaceful. So we're always trying to get to the island called peace and prosperity. So if you look at that from a practical perspective, running a practice, there's days where there's a lot of drama, a lot of obstacles, not always your fault many times not your fault mm -hmm. but if you can identify the barriers the obstacles then you can actually start to shift your direction or shift your leadership so my definition is that drama is any obstacle to your peace or your prosperity that is so interesting so essentially we got to identify those sharks if you will you know from your 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 visual and figure out how we swim around those sharks to get from point a to point b like you say um how how, uh, why don't you enlighten us? You've mentioned practice administrators and leaders. What is this thing that you call no drama leadership? Because I've read that in something you wrote recently. And what does that mean when, if somebody's going to set a goal to have no drama leadership, what does it well, mean? Well, yeah, thanks for that question. You know, it starts at the top, and sometimes leaders forget that. And I get a lot of calls, consulting inquiries, or people, like it might be an administrator, it might be a CEO, an executive, and they say things like, oh, there's so much drama, my employee's this, my manager's that. But the truth is, it all flows down from leadership. Mm -hmm. So no drama leadership is about looking, instead of at a drama perspective of who's to blame, who did something wrong, and focusing on the shark, no drama leadership is saying, I, as a leader, am going to take full responsibility, I'm going to stop blaming, I'm going to look for opportunity, and I'm going to see what the drama queen has to teach me about my leadership. Because I believe, you know, that life leaves clues all around and everybody, I swear to you, everybody at every level thinks the problem is somewhat someone else or that it's outside of them. And there, there are facts to support that. But no drama leadership is really about, there's three qualities and I call that being aligned, aware and accountable. And before you can have any of those things, you have to have clarity because in my body of work, a grounding principle is that clarity can change any situation. So you cannot be aligned unless you have clarity first. Well, how do you, and how do you get to that point? Um, 
if you are seeking the goal of having a, a leader, leadership, like you say, where, you know, you're, you're looking at how does this, what am I learning about me in this and how can I lead in a better way? How are some ways that leaders and practice managers can get toward that clarity? You know, it is really by observation. And it's, I think it starts with a desire to be a good leader and a definition of what that looks like and a clarity about what you want the culture of the practice to be. And that's hard work. And what I find, and this is so interesting to me, is that it's not hard work if you're just playing house, so to speak. If you're just putting words on a flip chart about our vision, our mission, our values. Because Cheryl, if you look at any medical website, whether it's a small practice or a major hospital system, every single one of them says mercy, compassion, mm-hmm. well-being. You know, they all have the same buzzwords. And the embodiment is a whole different essence. Embodiment is that we live these things and we test ourselves to say, if compassion is our number one, if that's our number one value, and we're very clear about these invisible elements, now to embody it, we have to say, you know what, if we've got, there's a common saying in healthcare, the nurse eat their young. Well, (laughs) if the nurses are, you know, rude and, and, and there's reasons for that. So I'm not blaming nurses. I I feel for nurses, but if that's the case, and, and these executives sometimes will come to me and say, we need a workshop. And I'm saying, you know, a bunch of tired nurses that are not getting enough support, mm-hmm. giving them a workshop on how to be nice is not going to, you know, stop your drama. So let's look at the idea of compassion. Are the employees compassionate with each other? If not, there's a sign. We need to understand what compassion really means. How do we embody it? How do we live it? Where does it conflict with our need to hurry, to make money? When we start to understand it on this deep level, it's when we start to live our values and start to get the clarity. Well, and I've, I've worked with a number of practices that don't have that clarity and, you know, compassion is, can be lip service. They, and then you see what you're, what you're talking about, this mean-spiritedness among coworkers or backstabbing, you know, and in, in among the staff, which is unfortunate and um, really puts them at a dif- disadvantage in their jobs. So if, if, as you say, managers look inside their practice and find that they're not aligned, you know, that the, even just internally, the employees aren't, what do they do? I mean, how, where do they start to okay. try to address? That's a great question. And so my first advice would be as a consultant, when this is happening, I would say, ask some questions, ask some clarifying questions first. When has this behavior been allowed? When did it first start to happen? And why didn't you say something then? And Mm. if you did say something then, where's the accountability? Because truly as a leader, you get to choose who stays, who goes and what the rules are. So again, it always points back to leadership and that, that stings so much. I understand that, but almost all drama indicates that there's either a lack of clarity and or a lack of conversation. It's the conversation that has not been had. Oh, wow. That's interesting. That is an interesting way. So it's, it's the, uh, it's the gremlin in the corner. <laughs> Nobody yeah. wants to have that conversation. It's the oh. elephant in the room. And yeah. here's what, <laughs> what I hear about that too. This is, and it's, and again, there are facts to ground these assumptions or these ways of being this way of leading, but here's what I'll hear. Well, we've got this great, she's, she's otherwise she's a great employee, but she just doesn't get along with the team. She, in other words, she beats the other team members with the oars, but she's a great rower. Mm -hmm. But the truth is she's not a good employee because if your standards were behavior is part of 
the way that we get judged, then she, by that standard, she's not a good employee. So if, if we look at the turnover that's being created by this employee and you really take the business case into, into your hands and look at it from a very broad perspective, you'll start to see this undermining is not helping you. It's actually hurting your culture and it's hurting the future of your practice. And it's so, costing money. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the turnover, right? So that's mm -hmm. expensive. So there's a whole bunch of reasons that. Yeah. So, so why has it been allowed? When did it first happen? What did you say about it? And if you did say something, why is it continuing? What that means is there's a lack of accountability. If you had the conversation and it's still happening, there's a reason you're telling yourself a story that you have to have this person. And here's what I know is a red flag. If someone holds you hostage because of their experience, their knowledge, whatever that may be, you've got to change that because you should never be held hostage just because there's no one to replace that person. So if you were having the conversation with who's identified together or the person's come to you for some coaching, I know you do coaching, um, and they've got this problem, what do you tell them? How, how do you advise them? once they've, they've identified this, what, what's a step they can take? And if there's a tool or a resource in your, your book, because I'm, I'm very intrigued about this seven ways to stop drama in your healthcare practice, because you've got the audio and you've got the workbook yes. worksheets, anything in there that you can share that would be useful to listeners? Yes, there's a couple of things. So I want to give you a real concrete something that you can do in advance. And at first, you know, I've already said, ask those questions. When did it happen? Because you need to identify sort of the pattern. But after that, it's really about, you're going to have to have a conversation and in the book, in the audio, there's an actual framework of how to have these conversations so that you don't get pulled off track mm -hmm. to the island called Look What Sally Did or the island called That's Not There. You want to stay focused on the end result, which is helping that employee course correct and, and solve their problems and be a better team player. So you've got to, first of all, start with an intention of what it would look like if things were okay. So if if Jill, the head nurse, is hard to get along with, how it would look is that she knows how to manage her stress and that she comes to you or gets some support when she needs a little bit of a break and that she's fully supportive and you help her grow her leadership skills. So that's what it would look like. And you start with that intention. Instead of starting from a punitive point of view, you get a real clarity about what it would look like in its perfect state. Mm -hmm. Then the next step you have to do, so these are some practical things you can do before the conversation is you get clear about the observable behavior and not your interpretation of what's happening. Uh because where we get stuck is we say, well, you don't care about the practice or you are not a good employee or you are, these are very general um, perceptions that we're coming up with because of emotion. Yeah. So instead of that, like what I would say if I was consulting is how do you know, and I just got through saying you're not a good employee if you're analyzing it from the standpoint of behavior, but I would say, how would you know they're not a good employee? They come in on time. They're very high in productivity. They don't ever make mistakes. They constantly document. What do you mean by not a good employee? Mm -hmm. Well, they don't help Carolyn when she gets behind because she thinks Carolyn is slow or she said that she thinks Carolyn is slow. Well, that's something very very concrete I can work with. Um, or she folds her arms and rolls her eyes when she disagrees in a meeting. Um, or she won't speak up whenever it gets heated. Whatever the observed behavior is, you can work with that to change it. Yes, there's something underneath it. There's a belief underneath it. There's a story underneath it. But what you can work with is what you've observed. So looking at the observed behavior versus, what did you say before, the what you think about that or your interpretation? Yeah, like your, yeah your interpretation. Because like, we talk in generalities and then we start to believe our own stories. We mm -hmm. say things like, well, they don't care about this practice. When in fact... 
that troublemaker may carry a great deal about the practice. And in fact, they brown nose or they, they hoard or they do whatever because they also care about their own interests. Mm -hmm. So what we have to do is align the interests. We have to take what is working and help them see the end result, the alignment to the bigger, to the bigger objective, to the bigger result that we want, which is always patient care in the end, but it's also to the profitability of the practice. So how can we help them to understand where we're rowing, what, what really constitutes success so that they can then align their actions with that. Well, and I like how you're, we're, we're kind of, this is a great segue into my next question because you're, you're moving us from the talk about drama and what it is and what, sort of the negative and we're moving now toward more positive. You're, you're telling people you got to take the observed behavior, not your interpretation and move them toward, toward the light, if you will. And so what, what, are you, what do you see are ways that as the manager does that or the leader, they can, they can empower employees. They, they, can, they can shift this to build their confidence and use this conversation as a way to, you know, to build their confidence, to think of them as a change agent. Because I imagine that if you get your challenging people that are, that are throwing drama bombs uh, in the billing office to kind of convert and see the light, then they can be a change agent and a positive employee. Well, and that's true. And really another skill that I want to bring and kind of thread through is you've got to come from curiosity instead of judgment. Mm. And this takes, this is hard. This is really difficult because it's sort of what consultants would call being dispassionate. And I've never liked that word because I'm a very passionate person. But passion sometimes creates very myopic vision where you think you're right about something and you're going to stand on that ground and you're not open for another understanding. And so to get curious, like walk me through what happened last week when you left early and we were still behind. Walk me through what was going on for you. I want to understand your thought process and I want to share mine. Um, and I want to, I want to help you to grow. I want to understand what's going on because if you find out, well, they, you know, they have a, a parent in the hospital or their kid needed to be picked up, then that's an understanding that you can work with. You can start to understand that it wasn't what you perceived, although sometimes it is, but in that particular instance, that's what it was. So you first need to get really curious. And then second, you need to know how to coach employees to empowerment. And what that really means is that, help employees help your team find their choice because when people are lacking in responsibility they're taking on a victim mode and so they're saying things like well i don't really have any choice or this is what so and so's doing and i don't like it and it's not fair and if you're not careful you're going to get distracted and it won't be the shark but it'll be the distraction the island that, where we play ping pong that's where we start saying yes i did no i did no you didn't that's not fair i didn't say it was fair you always say that i knew it wouldn't we start uh. to get those kind of conversations and that means we've lost control it means that we lost focus so what you want to do is get real clear about where you want them to go and what you need to understand and if someone is complaining the empowerment part is actually coaching them by asking the question after they feel heard. Now that's really key is that people have to feel heard and acknowledged because if you jump into problem solving, they're going to keep going back to the Island called that you don't understand. Mm -hmm. So you need to say, I think I understand what's going on. You're upset. You don't think it's fair. Get that clarity and get them to agree to the essence of, of that piece. Then the question is, 
I understand the emotional component. I understand your perception of it. So my question for you is, what is it that you want either me to do or what do you want as an outcome? Because what you're going to get here is more distraction. And it's sort of like cat and mouse. You have to know there's going to be resistance and you have to let that resistance come because what people say they want will never be the first thing they really want. Mm -hmm. They're going to say something like, well, I want Sally to be fired. Or they're going to say something like, well, what I want is not possible. And you have to know how to coach to the island called what do you want? Because if you don't get there, you, you can't help anybody. I want to strengthen something you're saying that I think is really important. I want to make sure that I want to reinforce this point. You started by talking about to empower people and build their confidence. You have to start getting curious. And that the curious is asking these questions. You're giving people some really good questions and um, non-judgmental ways to have that conversation like, like you said, um, walk me through this, or I'm curious, why did you, you know, so there's some, there's some trigger words there that I think are important. Asking why, letting people share and be heard, like you say. So I'm sort of couching things in I'm curious and why and help me understand really softens the way that your conversation goes. And it, and it, that's where it can help keep things from escalating to what you were saying is like, well, you said this and I understand, you know, and you get in this gridlock. So well, I think you also want to listen for very responsible language because if you're truly curious and you've got that open mind and heart, which you may have to do some, some prep work, especially if you're like me, I get kind of defensive and I, I can jump quickly through some hoops because I process really fast you've got to tamper your own emotions and get to a place where you truly want to help them. If you're not there, then don't have the conversation on that day. Wait until you can come to that place where you really can and are willing to try to be like a detective and figure it out because that's the only way you're going to be able to resolve it. Either that or you truly want to fire them and just own the truth of that because mm -hmm. if you pretend that you want to help them when in reality you just want to document, you're creating more drama because you're giving mixed messages. So you're really trying to gain clarity on how they're thinking. Now, if they've really been undermining, what they're going to do is to say, that's, I mean, you just don't understand me. You're, you're accusing. And what you want to listen for is them defending something that hasn't even been said. And then at that point, you want to say, well, perhaps I am, but here's what I'm asking, that you do not repeat that behavior. Mm -hmm. Because the very fact that you noticed that they're crossing their arms, like for example, let's say in the meeting, you've got one or two people that kind of lead everybody else down a road of like ignoring, they cross their arms and they roll their eyes and that signifies for everybody else to shut up. You bring that person in the office and say, you know, I, I observed something at the last meeting and I, I wish I would have brought it up in the moment, but I noticed that you crossed your arms and, and I thought I saw you roll your eyes. Now, how I perceive that is that you disagree with what I'm saying or that you think it's unimportant. That may not be the fact of how it is for you, but mm -hmm. walk me through what was going on for you. Because when you do that, they may say, I didn't do that. Or that's just, You're crazy. Well, I'm going to bring it up next time because it's, it's a pattern. Yep. And I'm going to ask that you don't do it. Now, what's going to happen is they're not going to do it anymore because they're going to be so aware that you're aware. Right, right. It's like they're being, they're, they've been called on it. You know, it's been, it's been observed and they're going to maybe temper that or just not do that again because it, yeah. we're able to directly have that conversation with them. And usually that's all it takes. But, you know, I do a, a program that I've got that I do with other companies. It's called the Performance Conversation Model. And it teaches leaders, managers how to have these conversations. And even in the moment, if you're in a situation where someone's behaving in a certain way, to actually take the pause and be aware enough to say, 
I noticed that you just glanced down at your phone. Did you disagree with what I just said or were, is, is there something important? Or I just noticed that you folded your arms and the story I'm telling myself is that you don't agree. Walk me through what's going on for you. Oh no, no, I'm just cold. They may disagree, but at least you brought it up. Mm -hmm. I think this is a great one because just knowing how things work, especially in small and medium-sized practices, this is a very common thing and it's kind of a passive aggressive. I might, I don't know if that's even the right. Yeah, it is. I, I kind of feel like it is. And it's a, it, this is a, a really effective way for a manager who's not sure how to handle that and doesn't want to get confrontational. This, I noticed that dot, 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 you know, you've folded your hands or whatever. Um, my, my understanding is this, but help me understand or walk me through what was really going on there and then give, give them a chance. Um, and even if they don't share what the real reason you've brought it up, like you said, it's out in the open. <laughs> yeah, they will stop. And here's the way that I look at this unconscious behaviors cannot survive in the light of awareness. Oh, great. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And it's true. You're right. It's out in the open now. Clear yes. Well, it goes back to what you said in the beginning, clarity. I mean, you have to have clarity about things. This is one more, example of why when everything is out in the open you're able to deal with things well, here's something else too i think you'll like you've got to want to excel as a leader more than you want them to like you and agree with you mm. oh that's a great point you're right mm -hmm. and and i think that's important for listeners out there who may have started in other roles in their practice and they've been empowered and, um, and, you know, gone through the ranks and now they're the manager and maybe they're managing people that used to be their side-by-side -side colleague that happens. And so you've got to decide, Hey, I'm in this leadership role and this is my, you know, this is my role now. And that may be different than it was five years ago when we were all chummy. Yeah. And it's a lot of times there needs to be sort of a, this is a whole other conversation, but I think there needs to be sort of a, a phased approach to becoming a leader because what I notice is that if someone's a technical performer and even if they're very responsible and has some leadership qualities, there's such a leap in identity that has to happen when you start to see yourself as distinct and different because of being a leader. Nobody thinks they're going to go through that drama, but that is an emotional drama that people go through where today I'm your best friend, but tomorrow I'm one of them. And that conflict of goals is very difficult. Whereas if you have a series of steps that people have to go through to become a leader, you start separating from the beginning and it's, it's a lot easier. Well, and why don't we, let's talk about that for a minute, um, about how managers can foster their own growth and leadership skills or the physicians listening can think about how when they do promote the manager uh, or they're just looking at their team and saying, you know, I'd like to see these people grow what are a couple two or three practical things that that can happen um or that a manager can do to foster their own growth and then let's talk about what the physician or managing partner can do to help yeah i think there's several things um they can practice just becoming on more aware and they can practice on initiating conversations that are somewhat difficult like practice bringing things up that might before have been a little bit difficult um, and I think another thing that people can do when they're wanting to, to go on their own leadership path 
is to learn how to seek clarity from their boss because a lot of times people nod because the boss bosses also haven't been trained. I mean, they, they are messed up too, you know, whether it's the <laughs> physician owners or whether it's a CEO or a major company or, you know, major entity, a lot of times bosses speak out loud all over the place and they think they're being strategic, but they're truly not. And, and a lot of times those that are there to implement don't really understand what's a priority. So you have to learn how to bring that up to say, I'm not clear, you know, based on what you just said, that seems to conflict with the priority we talked about last week. Could you clarify? Mm -hmm. It's not being confrontational, but it's making sure that you know how to be successful because until you learn how to clarify, you won't be clear with other people. And so an, another tip with that is to learn how to speak in terms of business results and not just in terms of your own special interests. So in other words, you want to be able to like, let's say you're a practice uh, manager to put this into some context. Let's say that your boss happens to be a couple of, of doctors, but there's some behaviors that they're doing, like they're letting the head nurse undermine by coming to them when she wants something to change. Mm -hmm. That's a difficult position to be in because you're kind of in the middle. You, yep. you, need, you need the nurse to work with you, but she's got special relationships. She was there before you. There's all kinds of things going on. You've got to be able to really unpack this thing and explain to your boss or bosses how these behaviors are impacting not only the team, but the business and the numbers and everything else, because you've got to make it about the practice, the livelihood of the practice. It's, it's really about the ability to have a conversation that is factual, that is business-based, that helps you to be seen as a higher level leader in the, in the eyes of the people above you. Yeah. And you're, you're raising this great point about, I mean, there was a, famous Harvard Business Review article years ago that I loved called Managing Your Boss. And I think it's been updated. It's probably John Cotter. I'm pretty sure it's John Cotter and maybe someone else. Um, and it's focused on the importance of, of, you know, managing up, if you will, and not being playing the victim of waiting and having these conversations and getting clarity and helping your boss prioritize for you when, like you said, there's competing priorities or there's some, there's, um, there's some communication conflict where your, the manager's authority is undermined. So you just gave a great tip and I'd like to, I'd be curious if you have other suggestions for managing your boss. You know, this is a very yeah, common I, thing in practices where they need to manage. Yeah. It, I think it's the hardest thing in the world to do because simply the way our brains are wired for survival. And there's a lot of studies. I think David Rock it studies neuroscience, got a lot of good work on that. I believe I read this in one of his books that when we speak to someone at a higher level status, our brains experience a threat response. So it's scary to actually go to someone who is in charge of your bread and butter, your promotion that you want to think highly of. It's more tempting to just be a yes man or just to roll your eyes and just get by. But that is so, I would say soul defeating that it's miserable to live in that space, especially if you want to be a leader, you have to learn about clarity, alignment, courage. You have to learn these, these character qualities. And so, you know, timing is a part of it. Seeking clarity is a part of it. Mm -hmm. Curiosity, walk me through, here's what happened. You know, Jill came to you right after you told me to implement this new policy and Jill came to you wanting an exception for herself. And that's happened twice. I'm confused. Walk me through your thinking and I'd like to share with you how this is affecting my ability to get your objectives resolved. Great. And I think, 
I think that those word choices you're giving people are just so important. So I, I imagine you've got some of this in the in your seven ways to stop drama, yeah. the the workbook and things. Are there some things in there that kind of reinforce? Because I this is a great resource. I, I really want to kind of call this out. But um, oh, and by the way, we are so Green Branch has graciously offered a twenty percent discount on your on this book. Um, the promo code is Chisholm, Marlene Chisholm's last name, C-H-I-S-M. And we'll have that in the show notes. And then it's also on the greenbranch.com website. If you if you search on Chisholm or, or drama, uh, it'll come up. Um, so really good resource for managers who are looking for some tools and some specifics. Um, yeah, and I, but I, again, that word choice that you're, you're giving is, is really critical. Uh, let's... Um, We've talked about ways managers can foster their growth and leadership skills. What about the physicians and managing physicians who are managing partners or not? Maybe they're a solo practice that are listening. You have any tips for physicians who want to um, do a little better job in being at the very top here, um, ahead of the, uh, over the manager as well? How can they help in the reducing workplace drama? You know, that's, oh my gosh, I could, I could speak for hours on that. Uh, <laughs> it's like a t- different topic, isn't it? Well, it is, you know, I, I love, I love doctors, just especially just for who I think, maybe this is my idea of what a doctor is, but in my mind, a doctor in some way has a special kind of intelligence, a special kind of calling, because let's face it, you can't figure out that you want to be a doctor at 50 years old. You have, you have to have some mm-hmm. sort of direction early in life you pay a huge price to become a physician you you have a lot of legal responsibilities you have a lot of things that's against you in the environment with you know reimbursements and all the things that are up against you and for anyone that's both a doctor and a business owner man you know i'm bowing down so i first i have the utmost respect because it it's a whole level of intelligence just to be a physician. There's another level and kind of intelligence to be a business owner. This is the part that I would say though, to be, you know, to doctors, don't be afraid to seek a consultant or someone that can help you to see things from a different perspective. And I'm not saying that to position myself for extra work. It may not be me. It may be someone else. It may be a vendor, it may be someone technical, but don't get into the mindset because this is a common trap for all entrepreneurs. And it doesn't matter how smart you are. You can't know everything. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, come with a learning mindset versus I've paid my dues and I'm going to be entitled and I'm going to drive it to the ground because really in the end, even though you have this brilliance, this wisdom, this gift to give to the world, you still are a human being that deserves a happy life. And you're not going to have peace and prosperity. If you're driving it hard, it's only you, you're the only one that's right. And you keep having turnover and you you can't figure out why no one is working together you have to dis- discern and decide what kind of help you're going to get, who you're going to learn from, and what is truly just not in your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. It's okay not to have all the answers. No one can, not everybody can be a doctor. And, you know, like I've had to come to this decision. I've had to help many entrepreneurs with this, this way of thinking, which is I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. I just need to know other smart people because we all are a part of the puzzle. Your nurses are a part of the puzzle, your people that do inventory, your people that do the front desk, everybody has something of value to offer. And when you get into a mindset of that you're the only important person or you're the only one that has to know or you get really hard on yourself because you don't have those answers, that is sure to make for a very unhappy life. So I would say, 
count your blessings that you know all this, that you're so talented, so gifted, so blessed, so driven, so called, but then get the help that you need. Mm -hmm. And that could be a consultant or a coach or, or yeah. a mentor or a colleague or, um, yeah. you know, but you just, you have to be able to step back and say, I can't know everything and I need to assemble a team. You know, I, I have a friend who he's in tech, different industry, but he has, he is loved and respected by his team. And every year he, he, well, he tells them, he says, you know, um, I like to hire people that are smarter than me. He goes, yeah. that's, that's what I want. He goes, I want to surround myself with people who have new ideas, different ideas, different ways of thinking that they can bring that to the team. He's so confident knowing that he knows what he's good at and what his wheelhouse is to call it a term you mentioned. And uh, so I think that same kind of concept is surrounding yourself with whether they're in external people or the manager you hire. Yeah. And just being willing to be aware about even if someone's not quite as smart as you or doesn't have it figured out or they're judging you unfairly, having a curious mindset about why is this perception out there? Mm -hmm. You know, what, like I think the biggest problem with, with the most brilliant people, those in power is that no one wants to speak truth to power. That's the value of a consultant that you paid to do that. Um, you know, no one wants to do that because it's just intimidating. It's scary. It creates yeah. a threat response in the brain. And after all, my gosh, you've, you know, you're a neurosurgeon. You've, you've done all this schooling. You're brilliant. You know, you're sharp witted, you're well-read. And yet many of the, these people have a lot of relationship problems, have gone through multiple divorces, uh, have horrible tempers. Some of that's personality. Of course, we're wired a certain way, but some of it is just personal growth. You can't be good at everything. This is your turn and your time for personal growth. Yep. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, listen, um, this has been fascinating. We want everybody to remember that there's a promo code in the show notes for Marlene's book, and that is Chisholm, 20% off. Um, go to the soundpracticepodcast.com uh, for that. And before we leave folks, though, Marlene, I'd like to, is, are there any final tips or advice, thoughts that you have for yes. folks today? Yeah, first of all, I'd love to just speak a bit about this product um, when I was asked to author this, it's because Nancy, the publisher, mm -hmm. the, the top executive at Green Branch, just saw me speak at a, a, a practice conference of, for practice managers seven or eight years ago. It's quite a long time ago. And she, we've always wanted to do work together. And she loved my message. And she thought healthcare really needs this. And, you know, I, um, I have some uh, principles that work in every industry. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. I don't do billing. I don't do coding. I don't do reimbursements. That is not my wheelhouse. I don't intend to. I help with the things that you can actually change and control, which is your communication and your leadership. And so we came up with this idea for this. It's more than a book. We decided that it would be more of a handbook. Very easy. People are too busy. And our thought was even doctors will want to read this because it'll give them an inside view to me talking to a practice manager who I've worked, who I've worked a lot with. Mm -hmm. And so um, the book itself is more like a, it's easy to read. It's got practical tips. It's got how to's. But with this, and that's why it's not like price like a book, but it is more of a, not only a self-study, but something for a small practice that you could use in gathering four or five managers together or four or five top people together. And you can listen to the audio and there's on the digital files, there's a downloadable um, handout that you can work through and have conversation 
So it's a good way to learn and get your education on that. Some, some practices shut down halfway through on a Friday or whatever, or you can loan it out. There's a lot of ways you can use it, but it is more than a, just a book to read and toss aside. It's actually got the audio that you can listen to and work through some work pages. So it's more like a self-study type of program. And we priced it that way. Um, and so I, I would encourage you if you think you've gotten value today to get that. And I would also just end with one thought that I give all the time. And that is, I'll give two thoughts. One is this, we are, we are, an, we are emotional beings as, as human beings. We cannot deny that emotions are a part of what makes us human. And so in my mind, we live in a both and world. It's not about avoiding emotions, but it's not about also living in those emotions and letting them rule our lives. So I often say that knowing your feelings won't change the facts but knowing the facts can change your feelings. Mm. And then when you change your feelings, you change your experience. And when you change your experience, you change your results. So facts and feelings, it's circular. So that's the first thing that I would say. And then to give you hope on the leadership journey, whether you're a physician, a CEO, a practice manager, no matter what your problem is, clarity can change any situation. So that I'll end with those two things. All right. No, that's, I love it. That's great. Clarity can change any situation. And with that, I just want to thank you for spending time with us today. Really appreciate your insights. I mean, they're fantastic for our listeners. And uh, as a reminder, 20% off, use the promo code CHISM, go to the show notes. It's allenpracticepodcast.com. And Marlene, thank you very much. Thank you. If you're talking about offering telehealth services, don't miss our next episode. We'll interview two national experts about the tactical side of implementation, billing, and coding for telehealth. Orthopedic surgeon Alfred Atanda, who's delivered hundreds of virtual visits, will explain how telehealth has improved his efficiency. Dr. Atanda shares his lessons learned about scheduling patients and conducting visits. And Betty Hovey, consultant and coding educator with Karen's Upco and Associates, will discuss the essentials of telehealth reimbursement. Betty will decipher important Medicare guidelines and provide tactical tips for getting paid by payers and patients. So don't miss the next episode of Sound Practice, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Tothi, we've come to the end of this episode. Marlene was terrific, and I think her Stop Workplace Drama program is a must for practice leaders who want to step up their management of these kind of challenges. As a reminder to our listeners, Green Branch is offering 20% discount with the discount code CHISM, C-H-I-S-M. Yes, and you'll find a link to Stop Workplace Drama in the show notes, or you can go straight to greenbranch.com to purchase it. And we also put Marlene's website link in there. I really enjoyed that interview with her. She, um, she really had advice. The way I would describe it is her advice is a real balanced blend of how managers can set good boundaries and be firm and lead with confidence, but at the same time, be open and supportive of employee growth. Oh, absolutely. Well, folks, thanks for listening. If you like today's show, please tell colleagues and friends and please take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcast or Google Play. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Sound Practice. Don't forget, we release one every other Wednesday. Bada bing,
You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and practice leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions about future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at Green Branch Publishing. For the best in practice management, journals, books, newsletters, and on-demand programming for physicians and practice executives, visit greenbranch.com. Had his holy cow, that man Robin, Rick Kapow.